Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lost Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to the latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show. Coming to you live from BeatonCon 2013. We're right here in the vendor hall. You can just hear the electricity. You can feel the energy here at BeatonCon. This is the final day of BeatonCon. We've got a great lineup experts here. This is a live call-in show, as the announcer said. You can dial in to 347-324-3080, or you can also join us over in the chat room. I see someone over in the chat room. You can ask questions there or email me today at tedhart at tedhart.com. As always here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. Google has celebrated its 15th birthday. 
Uh, you can follow along at tedhart.com the radio links, and they have a special Google birthday pinata that you can play a game and get a score with. So happy birthday to Google, the number one search engine in the world, currently with 70% of the worldwide desktop search market. Uh, for Google and just announced as the second most profitable uh, uh, logo and uh, message in uh, the nonprofit world, Able, or in the uh, online world, Apple being number one and Coca-Cola now moving to number three. Uh, next up here on uh, the nonprofit coach, uh, there are new domains, 700 new domains that have now been launched and are available. Uh, including dot giving and dot gives. Uh, so you can check it out over again, the radio links at tedhard.com and determine which, if any, of these new uh, uh, domain extensions are for you. So far, of the 700 new domains that have been launched, dot web is the most popular, dot online is second, followed by dot shop. Next up here on the nonprofit coach uh, is uh, we just celebrated a birthday and we're going to soon celebrate the passing of uh, Windows XP. Uh, the end of life for Windows XP has been announced as April 8, 2014. That doesn't mean that XP will suddenly stop working if you still have those dinosaurs loaded onto your computers. Uh, but what it does mean is that Microsoft won't be releasing any more security updates. Uh, they will no longer be supporting Windows XP. So our recommendation here on the Nonprofit Coach is if you have not upgraded uh, your Windows operating service, go to TechSoup.org and nonprofit organizations for pennies on the dollar can receive the latest in Windows operating service. Uh, so none of my listeners uh, past April 8, 2014 should be using Windows XP. Uh, next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, over in the radio links, you can follow along at tedhart.com, uh, is apropos to the fact that we are here at the Black Frog Conference for Nonprofit. Uh, we have uh, for you in the radio links a uh, really terrific slideshow uh, that's been put together by BlackBlog that sh shares with you the next generation of American giving. All generations are not created equal, uh, and the question that BlackBlog is asking is, are you optimizing your outreach and fundraising potential by connecting to each of the cohort groups? Uh, they have broken that down uh, into each of the marketable groups, uh, generation Y. Uh, they also provide you with information uh, regarding um, the fact that they are 11% of the total giving marketplace. The next cohort uh, that they, uh, uh, they track for you is Generation X. Generation X is not yet the largest giving uh, uh, component, but they do represent 20% of total giving. Uh, so what is your strategy there? And the largest giving uh, category now are baby boomers. And baby boomers now uh, represent 43% of the giving public in the United States. What is your strategy there? And don't forget what BlackRock calls the matures, uh, which 88% uh, in this generation give an average of $1,367 across more than six charities, and they still represent 26% of total giving in the United States. So lots of information to challenge yourself, to challenge whether or not you have a mature fundraising program 
that is feeding to Generation X, Generation Y, whether or not you've got a good baby boomer outreach program, and are you effectively communicating with those that Black Lives are the matures. Last thing that we have here on page one news uh, comes to us from AFP, and AFP, along with Cosmark, has just uh, released a study that shows that charities are raising more money, so we are coming out of the Great Recession, but we are still losing donors. For the first time in five years, charity respondents in the annual fundraising effectiveness project survey saw positive gains in giving, which is great news, but they are continuing to lose the donors uh, that they have gained in the past. Uh, so it's important that you read this uh, report and that you take corrective action uh, to how you are communicating with your organization. We are here live at BBCon 2013 in the vendor hall, and with that we wrap up page one, which means that we move over to page two. experts uh, from BlackBot here with us uh, at the BBCon live production of the Nonprofit Coach radio show. Our first expert today is Katie Beth DeShepper. She is responsible for creating and managing the analytical and marketing strategy used by BlackBot customer relationships and direct marketing programs. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach, Katie Beth. Thank you so much, Ted. Well, it's great to have you here, and as I said, uh, this is a special edition of the Nonprofit Coach. We're actually going to be going 90 minutes today because uh, we are here at, uh, at uh, BBCon. And we're going to start off with you as our resident expert. Um, so could you just uh, describe to us a little bit better than I just did the work that you do at Blackwater? Absolutely. So around 2012, we were actually part of another company that was acquired by Convio. And now we're part of the Blackwater family starting. And it's been a really good journey over the last couple of years. Basically, what we're responsible for is to make data actionable. So there's a lot of information out there, but what to do with it and how to make it real is a really a, a big problem. Now, is that, are you referring to big data? And what is big data? Oh, big data. So big data is a term that I think we hear a lot. But what that means has a lot of different definitions. Now, how would you... Uh, relate big data to the nonprofit sector? So I think for nonprofits, big data is kind of a, a bigger problem because there's a lot of different pieces and parts to that question. I would rather talk about smart data. Okay. So why have the data in a box? Um, why work on all of the integrations that have to happen for all of it to live in one place? So I'd rather talk about the smart data and what things it could answer so for us. So is that the difference between having a phone and a smartphone? I think so. So you have data and now you have smart data. Absolutely. So help us understand how do we get smart data? So I think the way to get smart data is to first have a question. So what are the goals? What are the performance indicators I need to worry about? What is my board asking me? And start driving from those specifics okay, so we don't make it too big. Go out, way out on Okay. I'd say that one of those questions that nonprofits might have is, how do I raise more money? Way out on the Oh, oh gosh. So, gosh. So how does smart data help me raise more money? So an example of where smart data would help you raise more money is, for example, advocacy. So advocacy is, is a, a part of the nonprofit sector that has a lot of interesting features. 
there's petition signing, there's actually standing in front of Congress holding a sign, but we don't really understand what that means in terms of how that affects donations. We think it should, but we don't know. So that's a great opportunity to have a business question to define what my smart data needs to look like. So what you do is you take very difficult uh, questions and help break it down to what data sets would help you prove or disprove whatever your theory might be. And Absolutely. what should you be tracking? Absolutely. And I think the most important thing is that when you do that activity, don't just get interesting. So if you can, you can go really quickly down the road of I'm going to have my question and build a Ferrari to answer it, right? right. Rather than I might just need a force focus because that's all I can handle, right? So it's one of those things where we want to make sure it's still actionable. So to make sure that we don't go outside that goal to get our to our questions. So I, I'm thinking that maybe you chose those car analogies on purpose because a Ferrari is not for everybody. Right. But a Ford Focus meets a lot more of people's needs. So is that part of the answer here is understanding the difference between data that is too esoteric to prove anything and data that's actually meaningful? Yes, that whole losing the forest to the trees thing. I mean, big data is just that big. I mean, that's a lot of storage. What, what am I doing with it? Right. Where I'd rather talk about, you know, let's make decisions and stick with the smart data so we don't lose our way. Okay, so let's let's make this real to uh, sort of the BlackBot experience. We are here at, at BBCon. Uh, BlackBot is known as a software provider uh, that has a lot of data that's, uh, that's available. Uh, in Page One News, and I know you were here so you could uh, hear Page One News, in the radio links today at tenhard.com, we have a link to a really terrific slideshow that uh, BlackBot has put together to help uh, their customers, but also the nonprofit sector, to understand that there are very specific cohorts of donors, uh, Generation X, Generation Y, uh, baby boomers, and matures, that respond to things in different ways, who give in different ways, who give for different reasons. So let's, let's give a real-life example. Let's say I'm a nonprofit organization, and I'm looking at my data set, and I want to focus on, am I communicating effectively with my matures, which are the older group of, of donors and may have very specific needs. So part of this is understanding that your one-size-fits-all communication, your messaging on one platform or in one newsletter is no longer enough. Correct, it's really not. The first question is, where are my matures? Okay. You know, are they only communicating with me in one way or multiple ways? And to figure that out, you have to smash your data together. Okay. Right? So now, what does that mean, to smash data together? <laughs> okay. So the first thing is the inventory where everything lives. So if I want to understand matures first, I would say, okay, how are you involving your donors today? What are your communication challenges? And then where are you storing that information? How are those things feels related. I mean, how can you relate those things so that you can make a Rubik's Cube to be able to answer those questions around your matures? How many do I have? Where did they come from? What do they give to? So that I can find the right thing. And one of the things that is, is sort of a knee-jerk reaction as well, okay, they're, they're matures. Uh, I might refer to them as senior surfers. Um, they're not online, uh, but they are. And we all be birds, Cygnus Donor Research has proven that they are online and that they have very specific needs. And that's part of what BlackBot is getting uh, to the heart of here is that these senior folks, these mature folks, what have we learned or what should we be learning in terms of uh, do they give at a higher rate through direct mail than they do online? Are they giving it all online? Is that what you're talking about, that data may be in different places, but it's all relevant? 
Well, for example, most of the people are really growing, the people who are growing on Facebook is that mature segment. They want to see the pictures of their grandchildren. I have a three-year-old. My grandparents in Idaho are 83. They have Facebook. So weird. But they're able to see what's happening. And because of that experience and the ease of use, they're seeing email, they're seeing online communication, but that's not the way they want to transact. So I have to be able to see the interactions, they clicked on something, and be able to measure what that influence is on direct mail. Right. And younger folks are moving away from Facebook and are more uh, likely to be on Twitter uh, today. Well, their parents are on Twitter. Okay. So they can talk about whatever they want, right? Right, right exactly. <laughs> and they do, because their parents haven't migrated over. Their parents follow them to Facebook and are still on Facebook. So the matures and their parents are on Facebook, so the kids have moved on. But right. understanding that that's okay, but you, but the one-size-fits-all never really probably works, but it really doesn't work today. No, it, it really doesn't work today, and that's another reason why big data, smart data, is really important. With, with the Gen X and Gen Y, they want to understand impact. They want to have real-time information about what's happening. They want to see through videos what their donations are going to or what can they do. One of the things that came out of the Next Generational Study is that there's a lot of transparency that they really require for them to even research further what's going on. The other thing is they want to understand impact. They want to see it, touch it, feel it, even though they're not there. Let's talk about impact because it, it, that's discussed a lot. It, it, it's almost one of those things that we, we all feel like we should know what that is. But does that also have different faces? I think it does. I'd rather think about impact in terms of there's mission impact, and then there's also donation impact, and of course those things are related. But to figure that out, I have to have all of my stuff in one place. So I think what you're pointing out is that all nonprofits, regardless of size, now live in a world where data matters, and where you may not have had to have smart data to be able to succeed. Now it's just becoming a core competency. Well, it's close. Okay. We're still defining, right? Right. But it's, it's something that everybody's starting to run towards. Well, but what you're saying is it's, it's always evolving. So mm -hmm. it's, we're not going to get to an end point where it's like, ah, this is what smart data is if you need it, because it is so specific to each organization that smart data is, is actually just the data that you can measure and make useful. Right. And really to make it smart, we need to make sure we have questions, okay. not just information. Okay. So give me an example of where we might have information but not the right questions. So an example would be I'm tracking who's receiving my email, tracking who's receiving my campaign, I'm seeing my transactions, but I'm not linking them. So back to the example of my grandparents who get an, who get an email and read information about you know what Cherry Navigator is saying, but they're still transacting offline. Well, most organizations be like, oh, the offline donor. Right. But they haven't really connected all of the other interaction that's happening on the other side. Exactly. And research shows that uh, you can strengthen a relationship and deepen a relationship through the transparency and information online that might actually translate to an offline gift. Right. And, and if you weren't looking at the right thing or asking the right questions, you might come to the conclusion that we don't need a website. We, we, don't, we don't need to be online because, in fact, uh, people just aren't making enough credit card donations. Because our right. only measure is credit card donations. So how do my listeners know that they're moving in the right direction to asking the right questions? Because maybe I don't have a lot of staff. Maybe I don't have a lot of money. 
and I can't afford really expensive consultants to tell me what questions to ask. I would say one step at a time. Okay. So a lot of board members are going to say, oh, those Gen X, Gen Y, we need those. Do you have them? Does your mission even speak to those individuals today? You may be surprised. Some of the smaller organizations might be really surprised at how many Gen X, Gen Y are actually on staff. And as part of getting to that answer, sort of some good old-fashioned focus groups and, and just chatting with people, or is it all analyzing data? Frankly, I would start with the data focus group have a little bias. It's still important to understand. It's more like I'm going to kind of paint more of the picture, fill in the colors. Okay. But the data allows me to have a structure. So maybe use the focus groups to test the data as opposed to gathering the data because then they just say what you want. Exactly. They say what they want to hear. Exactly. Uh, as opposed to we, we've learned these things in data, now let's test to see if it's true. Testing is very important. Okay. <laughs> All right. Terrific. Terrific. Well, wrap up uh, the discussion here of, of big data um, and thinking in terms of both big organizations and, and small organizations. You put on the table that a way to really understand that is smart data and that that in itself is evolving. So to the average nonprofit, does that just sound way too squishy for me to do anything about or is there something we can actually hang on to? Well, I think the first thing, especially as a smaller organization, is be good stewards of what you have. And when you think about expanding into different channels or different programs, think about how that relates to what you already have so that you don't lose any of that structure. Because someday you're going to need it. Great. Terrific. Well, thank you, uh, Katie Beth, for um, being here with us. Uh, we have uh, Tammy uh, is going to be joining us. Tammy uh, Radicic. Did I do that right? All right, great. Uh, we're going to be right back after this break. When you have a great idea and need to work with others to bring it to life, how do you do it? Sometimes it's tough because the people you work with are in different places, with different schedules, using different devices. Google Apps lets you bring ideas to life with others. Here's how. Start with email that offers more. Gmail does more than send and receive emails. It connects people and lets you chat instantly while viewing a snapshot of your team's relevant activities and access to everything they shared with you. With Google Docs, there's only one version for everyone to work on. Share easily with the right people without email attachments or compatibility hassles and work and together on the same dots at the same time in a way that simply makes sense. We, uh, uh, we're actually going to jump right in with uh, Tammy and Jeff O'Toole. Uh, they're both here uh, with us. Tammy has been supporting nonprofits and Blackboard Sphere since 2005. She manages the freshman orientation program, providing advice to new Blackboard Sphere clients. I can't wait to hear about the freshman orientation. That just sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, Jeff O'Toole is a senior client success manager who joined Blackboard one year before Tammy in 2004 and now leverages his nine years experience to help nonprofit clients grow their mission. Welcome here, Tammy and Jeff. Thank you. Now, I understand that the two of you uh, presented here at uh, BlackBot, uh, BBCon 2013, on the BlackBot Peer-to-Peer Event Fundraising Benchmark Study. 
Uh, so let's start off with what was the study? You know, why, why was this done? And what were you trying to accomplish? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ted, for having us. So the 2012 peer-to-peer -peer event fundraising benchmark study is really just a very high-level overview of today's very competitive fundraising world. And it really allows nonprofits to pair themselves to other similar, which is the key word there, other similar events in the fundraising industry. Now, we collected data from 2010 to 2011, um, and we sampled about 1,275 organizations and approximately 28,000 event candidates. Wow, so that's, that's a big data set. Uh, and what are some of the things that you learned uh, from this event study? Jeff, I think you've got some of the data, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we found some key findings across the study, and the, I think the ones that are most important were the first thing is that this industry has actually experienced growth every year, especially with the uh, economic challenges that we've had. So when you say industry, is that events? Peer-to-peer -peer events. Peer-to-peer -peer events, yes, right, yes. right. Thank you for the clarification. Peer-to-peer yeah. -peer yeah. events industry has experienced growth year over year. So that, I think, is a, a, a real encouraging thing for nonprofits, that this channel of fundraising continues to grow. And we just, uh, in page one news today, AFP has put out a study that shows that uh, nonprofit organizations are coming out of the Great Recession now. They are starting to make more money, uh, but they're losing donors. Um, is this one of the bright spots that peer-to-peer -peer has been growing, both in donors and dollars? Yeah, I think it is, and uh, you hit the nail on the head. It's not just in the number of participants in general in the events or the overall revenue for the organizations. We're seeing increases also in average donation sizes from the donors. That's great. And this is one of the, and I'm going to let you folks get into more of your findings, but this is one of the, the, the truly important aspects of online uh, is that peer-to-peer expert, -peer or, or what I call people-to-people -people fundraising, uh, where people are connecting with other uh, people and not just responding to emails. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it's important also to point out, specifically for the session that Tammy and I did, we wanted to not just look at the benchmark statistics themselves, but we really wanted to focus on how you turn those statistics and some of the key statistics, not even just with that report, but through the industry from what we've seen in our client success program, how do you turn that into actionable, tactical things you can do as an organization, given where you are against those metrics? Well, I, I like where you're going. Let's start off by taking a look at the data and what it is that you learned. Uh, and then let's, uh, for my listeners here and for those uh, listening live here at BBCon 2013, uh, give them some of those strategies that come from that to help them really make it much Yeah, so let's take a step back just for a moment. Um, the, the, it's important when looking at the study to understand which type of category you fall into. We definitely see a, a large um, difference in the numbers depending on if you're a cycling event, you're an endurance event, um, a run walk with a registration fee versus a run walk without a registration fee. There's a lot of interesting data depending on which category you fall into. Now there's some theories behind that for cycling and endurance which we define as a run or walk more than 10 miles. Typically those participants are very dedicated. Um, way out before the event starts, where our short runs and walks, you know, you may start getting involved maybe three months prior. Um, for the larger, um, the cycling and the endurance runs, it's a lot more physical demand. People are training, you know, to bike C to C or whatever those events um, are a part of. So it's important, first of all, so to understand. prepare their bodies uh, to have the endurance to be able to do that. So the fundraising kind of follows. Absolutely. Because they're engaged early. Absolutely, and so we do definitely see a, a large difference in the numbers depending on those categories, and that's why we start off uh, when talking about the study, making sure everyone understands the difference in the categories. It's not fair 
to uh, compare yourself as a nonprofit as a general comparison. You really have to kind of drill down in a granular detail. Well, I always wondered, I, I, I think your data is going to help uh, uh, get to the bottom of this. I, I always wondered, you know, nonprofits like, you know, the Avon Walk and things of those that were going to like three-day events. And, I, and, I, and, you know, just sort of as a bystander, I'm thinking, you know, why move to having so much of a commitment required uh, from your donors when you might be able to raise money with less commitment. And I think what your data is showing is it's because of that requirement for commitment that there, the fundraising follows uh, along with that and with less of a commitment, less money. Absolutely, and that brings us to a topic that Justin talked about is engagement. Engaging those donors and those participants early on, targeting your message to your zero-dollar fundraisers versus your, your returning team captains who are your most valuable players. Um, and we, we could talk about that for the next hour, but I'll let Jeff just kind of briefly touch on the findings on that part. Yeah, so we, we took, uh, you know, these benchmark reports are pretty detailed, and they tend to be pretty long, and there's a lot of them out in the industry. So we wanted to take all of those reports and boil it down to what we felt were the top five metrics that an organization involved in peer-to-peer -peer fundraising should pay attention to. And I think if I were to pick the top three of those five, the first would be participant uh, retention year to year, the number of zero-dollar fundraisers you have. Zero-dollar fundraisers, uh, we define that as what is the percentage of overall participants that don't do any fundraising. We know in the peer-to-peer -peer space, a lot of people will come and attend the event, but they don't necessarily fundraise for the organization. And the percentage of those that are part of your pool, obviously, is really key to how much money you're going to raise for the mission. Uh, and then I think the third one is, is definitely team participation. Uh, virtually every metric I've seen from any study shows that people that are part of team uh, raise almost twice what an individual participant does, and a team captain will raise up to three or four times even uh, an individual participant. And, and I think I mean, that... That was learned early. I mean, we can go all the way back to the success of the, the March of Dimes walks and things of that sort. They put a big emphasis on team. But I think you're bringing out data that gets even deeper and that, that is not well known, but really can spell the difference between success and failure. Yeah, I think of those three metrics, the, the team piece and retention, I think everybody gets retention the yeah, key thing you have right. to focus on. But the $0 fundraiser percentage, surprisingly, that's not really a statistic we found in hardly any studies. We heard it referenced by some of the clients that were interviewed as a part of some of the donor-centric study uh, in particular. So we've been kind of working behind the scenes to work with our clients, what we see in the industry, to figure out what should that number be so that you've at least got a benchmark to measure against. So just so that I understand, these, are these actual people who just show up and say, oh, I just want to cycle, but I'm not raising any money, I'm not participating, I'm just part of the... That's, the event? that's correct. They, they may okay. pay the registration fee if there is one, so but they, they're not complete freeloaders. They just <laughs> something. They just chose not to actually fund them. Correct. So for them, it's more of a sporting event. Correct. It, it's, it's less of a charity. Correct. And a lot of nonprofits, I think, and especially if they brought in race companies to help increase their participation, and they, a lot of them have tended, if they do like a 5K run or something, a 10K run, go after the runner community. And so they've increased participation by doing that, but what they're finding is that the number of fundraisers is flatlining or barely increasing. Because those people are just going from run to run to run, cycling event to cycling event. So for them, it's a way to stay fit and stay active. It's like, oh, you just happen to have an, uh, an organized event that I can participate in. I'll pay that fee, but I'm not connected to your charity. I'm not raising my I'm certainly not asking my friends. I'm just going to pay the bare minimum to get in. Exactly. I would, I, I'd say that, that's growing. You think it's growing? 
I, I'm not sure if the number of zero-dollar participants across the industry is growing or decreasing. We, we just really, within the last year, kind of came up with this data point within our team. We're certainly seeing that some organizations would have even up to 70% of their overall participant base that don't fundraise. And when we dug into those organizations, what we found, the number one reason that that was, typically, was really just in how they marketed and communicated the event. Uh, we find that a lot of organizations spend a lot of time talking about the event itself in the day, but they're maybe not as specific to let those people know this is a fundraiser. The primary reason you're getting involved in this event is to raise money for XYZ cause. And so it's, it's a bit of a messaging and marketing uh, challenge, I think. I mean, it's also a bit of a challenge, of, uh, it's sort of the, the analogy to a dinner, uh, where you get to a point where you just need butts and seats to, to show, that, show that it's successful, even if everybody's not buying the ticket. So, as you said, a lot of them are partnering with running groups and cycling groups because they want to show that there's volume. It looks like they're a big, successful event, even though at the end of the day, they're finding that they're not really raising the money they thought they would. It is. And uh, something I presented yesterday in our session, I kind of found the statistic on the fly. I received a post-survey event from a client that I won't name, um, and they simply asked, Two questions. Why did you fundraise and why did you not fundraise? And 47%, this is alarming to me, 47% responded, nobody asked me to. So again, it brings us back to that circle of engagement as Justice spoke to of, you know, getting the message out there, letting it be known that you know, you're fundraising dollars. Of course, you're participating in our event, and as you said, that's in the theater, important. Um, but your, your fundraising dollars are so vitally important to our, our bottom line. Um, you know, for a lot of our nonprofits, they do one event a year, and they, they rely very largely. Now that you put it in that, for, that, that context, I'm imagining that if I, say, have a cycling event, and I go to a cycling club and say, hey, I'd love for you to participate, probably the leadership of that club is sending out information saying, hey, the registration fee is $25, send in $25 you registered. There's never any communication because it's probably through the leadership of that other organization that says, we really need to fundraise here. This is a fundraising event. Yeah, and, and I think even in that scenario, one of the things that we really kind of tied to in the presentation is it, the ownership is really on the nonprofit to get them to take that action. And so I think the biggest thing they can do to affect retention rates as well as getting less zero-dollar fundraising on the part of the pool is to have a very specific, documented, strategic communication plan for how you recruit somebody on the front end, but then what do you do to engage them? Well, I, I can imagine that this sort of thing would drive, uh, we just had Katie Beth here, probably drive her crazy because she immediately wants to jump in to the next question because, you know, 40, I think you said 46% said I wasn't asked, but that immediately I want, I, I want to ask the question, if you were, would it have made a difference? Because <laughs> what you're saying is, well, gee, I wasn't asked, so I didn't have to, but if you had that, would it have made a difference or would they still just pull the registration? Well, I think they, I think this client that I was thinking about, um, took that as we didn't do a good enough job of, number one, letting you know about the tools that we've purchased and we've put in place to you for peer-to-peer fundraising. Um, you know, and again, back to the whole engagement, we keep coming right back to that step one engagement, not providing the tool tips. And there's so many different things that we've been preaching about this whole session at BDCon, things that a nonprofit can absolutely do to increase that bottom, uh, that bottom dollar. Exactly.
more, uh, are there more data points that we should talk to before we start getting the strategy? Yeah, so um, I thought it would be interesting for your listeners to know um, just some high-level, I know we've been kind of talking granular, um, some high-level findings that we have found from this study. So good news, we found that uh, the event fundraising industry across all event types and across all the categories actually experienced growth, even in a stagnant economy. We talked a little bit about, about that earlier. Um, and, and Jeff mentioned earlier as well, donors contributed more per transaction than they did in 2010. Of course, this is comparing data to our previous report. Um, here's a very interesting statistic for short distance running walks and events, and this caused a little bit of a debate yesterday, in our session yesterday. The absence of a registration fee has a positive impact on, um, on people attending, fundraising, and what we have found is that when you are charged a registration fee, you kind of feel like, okay, I've done my part, yes. yes. And so they're less inclined to fundraise. And we are finding that the trend kind of shifting. Um, and, you know, Jeff and I even had clients after the session yesterday to say, well, should we get rid of our registration fee? We don't have the magic answer for you, right? We don't have the right answer. But, you know, I guess in my personal opinion, it is. If you're charging five or ten dollars, why not take the gamble and not charge it this year and see how you do? But how much of a gamble is it? Because uh, you should, I'm, I'm guessing that you're able to track, okay, if you didn't have a registration fee, was the average fundraising higher than the combination of a registration fee and fundraising without it? If it was, doesn't that at least logically show you that if you didn't have a registration fee, you'd raise more money? Yeah, absolutely, and our, our data shows And that's what the data shows. But it's still controversial. It is. You know, it is. It you know, long letter versus short letter, you know, it's never solved. Absolutely. So. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like if you do a large exclusive type event where there's a very, very high point of entry for that registration fee, certainly we wouldn't recommend that for that type of client. But to Tammy's point, if it is a smaller five, ten dollars where the financial impact is not going to be that drastic, it's certainly worth it. And, and, and so an organization that runs a lot of different events tests out on a smaller event and just see. And, and it, we're both big on data. So I would encourage an organization that's thinking about whether that's the right direction to take. If you do have the ability to try it out on a smaller event, test it, run those metrics against last year, and see if it does end up more net revenue for the, for the public. Well, this is extremely important data. Can we, before we start talking about some of the strategies that you have, I'm just wondering, sort of uh, bringing it back to BlackBot in terms of what are the services available through BlackBot that support these kinds of events that, that allow the data to be measured? So, Blackbot obviously has a couple of different products for peer-to-peer. -peer. Uh, Jeff and I are both more focused on the sphere side, and not, not to just focus on just well, sphere. Well, that's your expertise. Let's talk about sphere. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, to your question about being able to get the data and, and clients, you know, doing some kind of data analysis year to year, whether they charge a fee or they don't charge a fee, very, very easy. Um, and it doesn't require these third-party vendors or uh, you know, even exporting the data, it's very easy to pull those, those data sets um, in here to be able to just simply do year-to-year -year comparison. That's great. That's great. So um, in looking at that data and now bringing it back to your study, what are some of the strategies that come out of the use of that data? Yeah, so the first one I mentioned of the three was the uh, participant retention. And I think if there is no other metric you focus on, Retention is the one that you should you should never leave out. That should definitely be the, the first one in your list. And you see even in traditional fundraising, it generally takes three or four new people brought into that fundraising pool to replace somebody that was active last year. We see the same types of trends in the event industry as well. 
And to me, kind of back to where I was, I was touched on this a little bit, the number one thing you can do to affect retention in a positive way is to have that documented strategic communication plan. You should really, before you ever go to launch that event or send out that registration as open email, have an entire documented recruitment plan that makes sure you're targeting specifically your top fundraisers from last year, your team captains, uh, people that are tied to corporate teams that are really important sponsors. And the messaging you should have for those groups should be different. And you should make sure you're hitting those different targeting groups multiple times throughout that recruitment phase. What does your analysis show in terms of how early should you start? I mean, where, where does that communication really matter? Because I mean, I'm guessing it could be too early. You get, you get it out too early and then you miss the message. Yeah, that, that's a, a great question that I get asked all the time. And I do think it is a little event specific. But we would recommend that communication for most, if you do kind of a large marquee event, that communication should start probably six months out. And, and you, four to six months out, but I would say even as far out as six months. And you tend to see uh, the great spike at the very beginning when you first start to launch that, people are interested and engaged, that's certainly a good time to catch them. It tends to lull off through the middle and then you get your course or spike at the end. Uh, but I feel like the longer you can push out the initial registration, the more time you have to engage them, to encourage them. Even if they're hitting their fundraising goals early, then you can start to kind of shift the focus into increasing those goals for that, that segment. So there's a lot of benefit, I think, to having longer time. But to the point you made, it's too far out if you just send a couple emails at the beginning and then it's silent for two months, right? right? right. So, you, you have so to that's have your notion of having a, a, a regimented strategy of this communication after that communication, and what's the what's the role of other um, uh, services like Twitter and Facebook, and how does that all interact with the platform itself and email communication? Yeah, so I think a well-documented communication strategy certainly does not just look at email. You you absolutely want to have your social media presence, whether that's Twitter, Facebook, and or both, included in that. You want to make sure, of course, the messaging is consistent across the platforms. It's probably a whole nother discussion to talk about what would, you would do differently with Twitter and Facebook and uh, Instagram and some of the other you know, social media tools, but it, it's a good point. You want that to be consistent because there's certainly a larger and ever-growing from the data that we've looked at group that really do engage primarily through that social media. Sure, so, and, and that's, that's an important recruiting tool beyond your known group, both for uh, uh, donors and participants. Yeah, let's be fair, that's where the new people live that are going right. to get interested in those events. That's the next right. generation. Right. Friends are going to want to participate with friends, so how are you going to know that your friend is participating in a cycling event or, or, or a walk? Now, you have specific data. Uh, you've broken it down to cycling events, endurance events. What are most profitable? Most profitable, interesting. Yeah. So, so, so really to answer that question, you'd also have to look at the overhead for having those events, which isn't in this particular study or the ones I've looked at, surprisingly maybe in some ways now that you've raised that question, part of that equation, because naturally putting on a massive triathlon event is a little bit more uh, expense for the organization than a fun run. So uh, that, that's actually a really interesting question. I don't know that well, I've maybe, seen... Maybe, maybe that's an unfair question uh, because it is so event specific in terms of you could have sort of very lavish cycling events with, you know, lots of you know, activities along the way and one that's a, a, a little bit less uh, uh, expensive. But of the events that you've broken out, are, is there a trend in terms of average gift or average donor in terms of drawing that? So maybe we can't really sort out, did you spend a lot of it to do the event? But in terms of from the fundraising perspective, is that, do you tend to make 
more money as a charity to do a cycling event or a short run? That, yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, the expense side, we can't really factor right, in because right. you might choose to spend a lot more than somebody else. But from the donor perspective, in terms of what I'm raising, what I'm putting in, what am I participating at a higher level at? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as I said earlier, for the cycling events, it's so important to understand which category you belong to. But for the cycling events and some of the endurance runs along, what we see is they have a higher minimum fundraising goal, so it, it is more costly for the nonprofit to put these events on. However, each participant is responsible for raising that minimum. If they don't raise that minimum, they're paying that difference out of their pocket. So that's a tactic so that's that they have. Of, one of the ways that they, but, but is that, does, does that then come into your statistics uh, specifically related to entrance fees? Because if I have a minimum, am I only raising to the minimum to get in and not raising more? Well, I think if, if we're just looking at just the total online fundraising, and typically when we look at online fundraising numbers, we're going to include registration as well as donations in that. So it's kind of a sum of the online activity. Uh, we would certainly see that endurance runs and walks are for the top category that tends to raise the most, uh, you know, median, uh, followed by the cycling events, uh, closely followed by just a regular run walk with a registration fee. So I'd put that as maybe a 5K, 10K versus like a marathon would be more the endurance event and then run walks without a registration fee, just for the average online raise, tends to be a little bit lower, but you kind of expect that because those events now tend to be as professional, as large, as grandiose in a lot of ways. So again, if you're just looking at net, what is, you know, or gross rather, uh, what has come in for the event. Your, your recommendation would be what kind of event? I don't, I don't know if it would be difficult because to answer that, I think, because the expense piece is a, a very real factor, of course, for a nonprofit. They may not have the capacity to put on a very large-scale event. I think instead I would say start with a small event with maybe a really low point of entry just to get that participation base up, especially if you're new to events and haven't done them before. I'd recommend a nice, short, one of the things we definitely see in data is you can have a couple different options, like a 10K, a 5K, and maybe a kid's mall. Then you really expand the pool of prospects to a lot of different groups that want to get involved in different ways and uh, different price points. Yeah, price yeah. points. Uh, you're not putting on this massive triathlon that's going to be a huge amount of money to invest in making it happen. And quite frankly, if you're newer to a logistics of an event of that size and scale, uh, the smaller you make that, the better off you are. So I think my answer to your question would be I would start small and, and build from there. But start small and it doesn't really matter what kind. Like start small with a cycling event. True. But now, when, when you say events, is it, 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 this really focus on sort of more of the sporting events, the runs, the walks, the cycling? And because a special event could be a charity auction, it could be uh, a gala dinner. Yeah. That's not really part of this. Yeah, the, uh, the data that we're talking about today included galas, lunches, bowling, bowathons, uh, and, and any type of third-party event. Uh, in the full peer-to-peer fundraising study that you can download at blacklight.com, uh, has some additional findings about third-party events that we chose for the majority of our audience here at BBCon to just focus on these types of events. Because the bottom line is, and one of the things I wanted to, uh, we're going to take a quick break when we come back. What I want to really delve into is, you know, events are costly, and they, they're costly in ways that nonprofits don't often think about in terms of using volunteer time, staff time, and pulling all of that in together. And when you're looking at the, the data and the growth over time, what you're showing is that donations are up, participation is up. Uh, but is there a way for you to give us a, a, a peek behind the curtain to say, are these events more profitable in some way to the organization, even if it's not just the dollars? 
So we're going to come back and we're going to try to get to uh, a little bit of that story uh, and take a listen to how you can uh, learn how to use Google Keep. Life, it's busy. Wouldn't it be nice to have a central place where you could save what's on your mind? With Google Keep, you can stay on top of your world by quickly and easily organizing everything you want to remember. No matter where you are, finalize door list for Thursday's gig. So when you find inspiration, you can file away your ideas. And Google Keep stores them safely across all your devices. And when the time comes, you'll have everything covered. Save what's on your mind. Google Keep. And uh, we're back here live at BBCon 2013. Just a reminder, next week here live on the Nonprofit Coach at 12 noon Eastern on October 8th, Penelope Burke will be back here from Cygnus Donor Research uh, helping us learn what donors want, what they do, and what they think. So we're live here again with uh, Tammy and Jeff. Uh, they're talking about their peer-to-peer -peer special event uh, study. And what I wanted to do is start getting a look at sort of behind the scenes, because these are very costly events. We have a direct cost of putting on a cycling event or a walk event. There's volunteer time, there's staff time. So for the average nonprofit, uh, are you advising the special events or something that you're giving to? Yeah, I, I think I, I would say yes to that. It's certainly if you have the type of cause or mission and engaged supporters that you think would, would support an event, I think it makes sense to do. And, and I think the primary reason is because you're through these types of events, you're really engaging a different type of support of the organization. There's certainly a group of people that the way they want to support your mission is to write that check. But we're seeing an ever-growing group that really want to get involved uh, themselves in very, very specific ways. So if you think about the people that get involved in these different fundraising events, the vast majority of the donors that come through those fundraising pages and support the organization through that effort are brand new people that you would have otherwise had no other ability to touch. So you're, you're reaching an entirely different pool of people to become donors. And if you do a really good job with that, the idea is you do then convert them in other ways. Maybe they become participants next year, or maybe they join the annual fund or get involved in other campaigns. Let me ask you what you think about this. I, I've often uh, tried to explain uh, special events in the following way, that, that there are three components that you have to meet for a successful special event. One is, of course, the fundraising itself, the money that comes in. There's a bottom line factor for the organization. Did you make money or did you lose money uh, versus donations and, and expenses? But the other aspects that are a little bit harder to measure uh, are sort of the donor recognition, the, rec the recognition of sponsors and those that these public events can help draw attention to their good charitable work. And then the third is the one that you just mentioned, and that's the prospecting. So there's sort of three aspects to it, and I think oftentimes we really focus on what we can measure most, and that's dollars in, dollars out. But these other aspects are important too. And is there a way to get a handle on that or see that in the data or, or quantify that for a nonprofit to determine, should I do a special event or should I keep a special event? 
Yeah, I, I think most of the data that I've looked at thus far, not just in this study that we highlight in this presentation, but across the industry, tends to be under the premise you're already doing this and how well you're performing against other groups that are already doing this. I can't say that I've seen a ton of things that help a nonprofit decide, should I be doing this or does it make sense for me to be doing this? But I think in general, let's, let's put events to the side and just think a bit broader about peer-to-peer -peer fundraising in general. I, I am a, a firm believer that the future of the nonprofit is more about how they can engage their supporters to fundraise and engage their friends and family on behalf of the organization than it is the organization out traditional model that we've seen you know, up till now. So maybe for your organization, the events piece isn't there, but that doesn't mean you, can, you can't get people together to do their own third-party fundraisers so the organization's not hosting the event. Or maybe even do virtual fundraising campaigns that give the ability for somebody to go online and create a fundraiser page and do whatever it is they want to do for your cause. So I think, you know, regardless of whether in the end you feel like events make sense for you given your, your cause and your supporter base and your, and there's so many factors to determining if that's a worthwhile investment. I don't think there's any organization that can't benefit from peer fundraising, and that should definitely be a part of their strategic plan moving forward. And Black Lives Sphere uh, allows nonprofits to support all those kinds of activities. So it could be the virtual sort, it could be a live event, or, so it's a flexible enough platform that if they're a client of Black Lives Sphere, they're able to maneuver in this ever-changing peer-to-peer marketplace. Absolutely. So Uh, way that, that 
one way that philanthropists that are younger are looking to engage. I, I absolutely fully believe, you can put me on record here, the organizations that will be most successful in the future will be the ones that figure out how to provide the tools and platform for their supporters to engage their networks in any way they want to raise money and, uh, and participation. It's not always just about money. I mean, they're going to be also bringing in more volunteers and more people with interest in the mission and advocates and ways to get involved. Well, Jeff, I'm going to thank you for saying that because I just gave a lecture here uh, at BBCon and the point of it was that what I call people-to-people fundraising or P2P fundraising is that very notion. It's the holy grail. It's when you are not doing all the asking, but you're providing the tools and the inspiration to allow others to engage their own national networks. And that that's the future, that's how the internet actually succeeds. And you've got the study that's helping us prove that. And I want to congratulate you on coming this far. Uh, I understand that you've done this for a couple of years, and, and I think as we get deeper into the data and we start seeing trend lines in this area, this is only going to become more important uh, to uh, the nonprofit. So thank you again for joining us here live on the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you. That was uh, uh, Tammy Radinsic, sorry. She, she gave me a pass later and I thought I actually said it right. Uh, so uh, Jeff O'Toole, also uh, both here from uh, Black Club, thank you for joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach. Now I'm going to invite a good buddy of mine uh, who is here and is uh, participating in uh, Black Bud. Uh, Jeff Zanak is here and he's come all the way from Toronto. I want to uh, ask him to come up and just uh, uh, chat with me for a little bit because uh, first of all it's great to see you here Jeff. Uh, and I wanted to uh, ask you, this is the third and final day of BBCon 2013. Uh, as someone who uh, is an expert on Black Bud, is uh, one of Canada's leading uh, proponents of the use of Black Bud has helped probably more nonprofits succeed uh, in Canada on Black Bob than any other uh, organization. Uh, just give me a little bit of information about how BBCon 2013 is wrapping up here today. Thank you, Thank you, about 
BBCon is it's grown beyond just being the Blackbot products, but there are other vendors here, there are other messages here. It's now, in, in my mind, it's sort of now become about the ecosystem of philanthropy um, that in a lot of ways for a lot of organizations is centered on one of the Blackbot platforms, but to succeed on those platforms, your knowledge base has to be broader. Everyone thinks that it's for the county, you know, the database administrator, it's not. There's a lot of fundraising and self science, which are good for those database people to go to and hear and understand what the fundraisers are. But there's also great sessions like Penelope Burke was speaking here, other people like you. This is going to be live on my show next week. I heard that, yeah. You were speaking here, you know, other people, you know, not just about how do you raise your debt or can be or financial education, it's actually fundraising topics as well. So that's why it makes it more of a complete conference. Right, and now, so next year, BBCon will be going to Nashville. Uh, so just from a perspective of someone who's not uh, on the Blackboard staff but knows the platform and knows this conference so well, why should people beyond the techies consider going to BBCon in Nashville? I think that, it, it, like you said, it's not just about the products, and they have such a wide range of them, but it's still all the other learning opportunities. You know, there are fundraising sessions, and then there's networking sessions. You know, we can't speak enough about how networking with other peers, understanding what other people do. You know, there's such a wide range of organizations from your hospitals and to your arts and to your schools. And there's just sit at lunch, you know, when you're sitting outside like we were today, and there's a whole group of us just from all different organizations just talking about all the networking and talking about all the things that they do. And it's like, oh, I have not tried that particular thing. Oh, that annual fund. Uh, or I have an annual fund. You know, one of my colleagues is here and, you know, she has a number of uh, privacy concerns around email, opt-in, opt-out. So she was soliciting, what do the other people do? What do you do in the States? Oh, you're from the UK because there's such an international group here. So she was able to walk around and ask other people, how do you, how do, you do this in Razor's Edge or how do you handle that kind of thing. And I think that's one of the successes of BBCon is that you, you, you tend to get so bogged down in your own office and thinking about your own issues and your own campaigns that this gives you a fresh perspective yes. and an opportunity, as you said, to kind of trial other uh, approaches, other services that maybe you hadn't thought of or you didn't uh, give yourself the time right. to consider it. This is a way to kind of immerse yourself and have a fresh perspective where you could go back to the office. You were very kind to come on the show. You weren't planning on doing it, which I really appreciate it. Um, just to make sure that my, uh, my listeners know how they can reach you, because you are one of the foremost experts in uh, Canada, and I want to make sure that anybody in Canada can reach you. They can visit our website, which is jvsolutions.com. They can follow me on the Twitter at Jeff Janak, at J-E-F-F-G-I-G-N-A-C. Uh, if any of your listeners uh, were not at the, uh, not at BBCon and they use Razor's Edge and they want my uh, Gremlins in your database uh, slide, be more than happy to share that with your listeners so they can get in touch with you and then you can get in touch with me and I can share them uh, with any of them. Uh, so they can stay in close contact. So you can email me as always at tedhart at tedhart.com and uh, we'll make sure that you get in contact with Jeff. Jeff, thank you thank so you, much uh, for uh, being here live at BBCon here. Uh, I'm a nonprofit coach. We're going to take a uh, quick break, and uh, when we come back from the break, I'm going to be joined uh, by Jeff, uh, Chuck Longfield, who's going to be here live on the Nonprofit Coach. Every day, millions of people are online, many of whom want to help, volunteer, and donate to a good cause. Nonprofit organizations can use many Google tools to reach potential donors around the world and raise more money. And as an approved nonprofit, it doesn't cost a thing. It's all free. 
Google Grants helps you promote your website with free advertising on Google.com through the AdWords program. With Google AdWords, you create ads and choose words or phrases related to your nonprofit organization. When people search on Google using one of your phrases, your ad will appear next to the Google search results under the Sponsored Links section. AdWords allows you to target certain geographic areas, dates, and times of day for your ads to appear. YouTube for Nonprofits is another tool that can boost donations to your organization. The program offers a number of perks that get your message out there and drive viewers to take action and donate. You can list your organization on YouTube's nonprofit channel and add call-to-action overlays on your videos to drive viewers to donate. Need help analyzing your website traffic and marketing effectiveness? Google Analytics is a free tool that will give you rich insight and help you increase the number of people that visit and donate to your site. Google Analytics can be invaluable to many people in your organization, such as development directors, marketing staff, and your web team. There are many other tools that can help you reach more donors and raise funds, like Google Checkout, where you can process credit card donations with no transaction fee, Google Sites to create a free website, and Website Optimizer, where you can figure out the best landing pages to turn site visitors into donors. To get started, apply for Google for Nonprofits today. And we're back here live at BBCon 2013. And my guest now is Chuck Longfield. He became BlackBot's chief scientist in January 2007 and is the founder of Target Software and Target and Analyst Group, uh, both now BlackBot companies. Chuck has extensive experience designing and implementing national as well as international constituency databases in recognition, and this is very impressive, of his accomplishments. Chuck is the recipient of the DMA 2012 Max Heart No Relationship uh, Nonprofit Achievement Award. So congratulations, Chuck, and thank you for joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you, Ted. Happy to be here. Well, I was uh, giving a, a heads up here uh, about uh, Chuck in that uh, he is one of the smartest people uh, in nonprofit data uh, and one of the most humble. Uh, so I would say that's a, that's a great reputation to have. So uh, what I'd like to do is actually go back before January 2007 uh, and talk about target software, uh, target uh, analysis group, uh, and what you were trying to accomplish in the nonprofit sector that now became part of BlackBot. Um, uh, I've actually been working with nonprofits since 1978. Um, I uh, built my first fundraising system with a public broadcasting station in Boston, WGBH, in 1979. And through the first 10 years, had another company called Access International that um, did a lot of national databases, uh, probably about 50 organizations. And then I took a bit of a hiatus and became a high school teacher, taught math for a while, and then started those two target companies. And, and one of the reasons why I got back into the business is, is that um, at the time um, I got back in, sort of in the late 80s, early 90s, um, data was, for the most part, um, unused. Organizations had uh, been building um, systems in place that were starting to collect data from a lot of disparate parts of fundraising. So they might have um, who attended events and who gave when gifts and, and uh, who uh, um, uh, you know wanted to get the newsletter and such. 
um, and, um, and certainly with the donation data. Um, but organizations weren't really using it. They were relying for the most part on the traditional big three. Uh, we could big three, we see them out, and, and, uh, and uh, they would just try to milk those three variables with a, a maximum amount of value. And yet those other interactions, um, whether somebody came to an event, answered the survey, and said, um, those were now being recorded in systems but largely unused. So the first company that I started was Target Analysis Group, which actually now is late is branded Target Analytics. Uh, we actually kept the brand when we merged it with Blackboard. So um, I, sometimes I now just call them Target Analytics. But, um, uh, so um, I started Target Analytics, and the idea behind that was to actually start um, doing a deeper dive into most organizations' databases and sort of finding meaning from that data. And one of the very first products I came up with is, is that um, the organizations all coded their data differently, um, and they still do for the most part. And so, you know, one organization might call it uh, the telemarketing renewal uh, notice ABC uh, as a source code, and somebody else would call it XYZ. And so it was very difficult to actually make sense across databases. So I created a benchmarking product that would actually um, take everybody's unique data system and sort of run it through a filter that would standardize the data and sort of come up with common coding. And then I would benchmark their results against their peers. So Harvard would benchmark against Princeton and WGBH, the PBS station in Boston, would benchmark against NEP in New York and Weeder in Washington. Um, American Cancer would benchmark with American Heart. Uh, the Nature Conservancy with the Sierra Club, and um, and over the period of you know I don't know about six eight years, I was benchmarking almost all of the largest nonprofits in the country, and um, they would then take this apples to apples data, and we would go and on a retreat someplace in the country for a day or two, and and we would moderate a discussion around why is Brown University, for example, getting um, uh, don't, their alumni to upgrade at a much higher rate than any other school in the Ivy. And, um, and so then the woman who's actually at Brown, Tammy Ruta, would then talk about the unique modeling that she was doing that no one else in the Ivy was doing that was uh, uh, the reason why she was getting such higher results. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so um, out of that, um, I became exposed to the richest data set in philanthropy. Um, I had clients that had um, millions, tens of millions, even in some cases, hundreds of millions of transactions and interactions sitting on my computers, um, all in a standardized format. And I could look at that point almost like a doctor or, or the medical profession looking for um, you know, clues to disease, et cetera, for even the smallest indications of a valuable sort of correlation or trend and um, uh, was able to do that. And then the second half, the target software side came about was um, I was frustrated that at the time a lot of software systems still weren't capturing enough data and in a usable form. So I actually created this software called Team Approach, which became the dominant software um, goal to, to um, national and international clients. And so I think six of the top ten national health groups used it, six of the top ten environmental groups used it, world relief, et cetera. So I had, at that point, kind of the full circle. I had the organizations that were on the front line capturing this rich data, and then I had a second company, which worked with all nonprofits, whether they used my data or not, and used my software or not, but was able to find meaning in that data. First of all, let me just say, I, I, now I know why everybody says that you're one of the smartest guys in 
uh, nonprofit data. Um, one of the things that, that, that you were a leader in is this modeling and taking data, pulling it into cohorts and, and helping people understand that you know, this donor that looks very different from this donor is actually very similar and acting in a very similar way. Um, and as you said, you started uh, those companies uh, many years ago. Uh, and the data has only become richer and the ability to, to uh, analyze uh, that data uh, and slice and dice it in so many different ways uh, has only become better. But yet still it, it seems it's a minority of nonprofits that, that actually understand that even though it's become far more common. I mean this is, this is not new cutting edge. Uh, it's only cutting edge for someone who somehow still is not using data in this way. Why is that? First, I'm going to tell a little story about sort of change management, because uh, it really is it, it's that element, but in another industry. So I use this as an example of, of data and modeling, um, and I use the automotive industry probably the furthest that you would think from in terms of, of data processing. But um, uh, 20 years ago, when you wanted to stop your car, you hit the brake, there was brake fluid that was pushed basically from the brake pedal to the brake, and it applied the harder you hit the brake, the harder the brake pedals would be pushed, and you frequently would go into a spin or something, but if you wanted to stop the car, that's how you stop the car. Today, when you press a brake pedal, they actually left the interface the same, but in all, uh, to be perfectly honest, you could be giving a voice command if you wanted to slow down, because when you hit the brake, all you're doing is giving one variable into a model, which is the urgency with which you need to slow down, and then the other data that's being taken into the model is things like temperature and speed and whether the wheels are rotating at different speeds going around the turn and the slipperiness of the road. And at that point, the computer model actually figures out the best way to slow down your car, pulsing the brakes, et cetera. And, um, and so that's an industry that recognized early on that a person is not going to take all of those things into account, that I'm in the middle of a turn, on snow, and I should pulse my brakes a million times a second, physically they wouldn't do it anyway, um, to actually optimally slow down the car. And so what, what has happened in our field is, is that we have a lot of data, but for the most part, the practices and the tools that we're employing have stayed the same tools. And I think part of it is, is that people, while they may understand intellectually that there's value in that data, at the end of the day, if you, in fact, just another way, if you said to them, is a hundred dollar donor better than a fifty dollar donor, getting back to recency, frequency, and amount, they say, yeah, a hundred is better than fifty. If I said, is two gifts better than one gift? Yeah, two gifts better than one gift. Is somebody who gave last year better than somebody whose last gift was three years ago? Yeah, no, last year is better than three years ago. So I understand that. If I now bring in the richer data set, is answering two surveys better than visiting a website? Is coming to an event better than turning down the thank you piece? Is reading the newsletter better than, and you get the idea, that I'm lost. I don't know the correlations. I mean, I, I may know that those are like little signs of passion that somebody's visiting my website and actually reading it or reading my newsletter. I took the time to answer an 80 question questionnaire, but, but I don't know the value of it. And so I think it's more incumbent on organizations like Blackboard. So one of the things that I did, this is about six, eight years ago, 
is I started building models that actually, across very large data sets, started to understand those correlations. And I'll give you a funny one that many people have heard now because I've said it for so many years. And that is if a donor calls a nonprofit and, and um, uh, to change their address, actually picks up the phone and calls a nonprofit to change their address, they're 11 times more likely to leave you a request. And it's almost one of the greatest things a nonprofit can do is to actually say to you, I don't want you to lose track of me. Because most donors support lots of organizations, and they actually don't mind if many of those organizations lost track of them for a few years. I'll I mean, find another one, or yeah. I'll find you when I want you. That's right. But, but you're not going to do that with whoever your favorite nonprofit is. And so here is a piece of data that everybody would view as a clerical transaction. And when I talk to nonprofits, there's almost no nonprofit that even tracks that. They would say, we will update the address. Right, if you call, we answer the phone, we change their address, but at no point are we actually putting in that you called to change your address, so it's indistinguishable from the national change of address, or you just wrote it on the reply device. And, and yet calling is a different app. And, and so um, what really needs to happen is somebody who has the resources needs to understand these cor correlations and build them into models that are useful, that do better predictions. And then today, the largest nonprofits in the country, you know, you look at the cancers or the nature conservancies, they do predictive models. And if you look at the majority of nonprofits, they don't. And I think as we move towards the future, it'll be incumbent upon us to build more things into our product that are able to make those predictions so that the interface is more like stepping on the pedal than understanding all the variables. Well, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. But I also, you know, I have sent a lot of nonprofits to, uh, to your, your service. And one of the, the things that I always tell them is, you know, I've yet to have a, a client uh, who did analysis of their database, who didn't find major donors that were already there. And I think what, what, what's often uh, challenging for uh, people like you and people like, like me that are, that are helping nonprofits succeed is that often the answer is in their database. But yet nonprofits are always looking for someplace out there is that next big donor or that next big grant. And just the analysis of by zip code, you were using the example of, you know, is one $100 gift versus two $50 gifts, which is better. But I think the, the, the story behind that is, where do they live? And how much do you know about that $50 donor? Because a, a $50 donor, uh, maybe that's all they can give. They're, they're stretching, you know, they, they're very proud of the fact that they were able to get up to $50 as opposed to somebody else who's giving you $500 and it's go away money. Yeah. Here, it's 500 what, go away, please, will you stop, stop contacting me? Yeah. I'll give you $500. And it matters, but most nonprofits don't know the answer to that story. No, no. You know, one thing that's gonna force that issue is with that, I, I've been joking, not joking, because it really is a, a serious trend, but um, they're basically Um, You know, the, 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 um, the cost to acquire a new donor over the last decade has gone up to such a degree that most organizations are spending at least all of the first year gift and now probably most of the second year gift trying to simply acquire a new donor. There's a fundraiser in the UK, Alan Clayton, who's a friend of mine who has a great line. He says oh, that retention is the new acquisition. And so organizations are going to have to get better at having a smaller file because they're not going to be able to acquire enough donors to replace the ones that are leaving. The retention rate of first-year donors is abysmal, and it's been getting lower um, pretty much forever. 
Yeah. Um, and um, and they're just going to have to get better at um, at looking at their existing donor base and, and maximizing the value. And to do that, what they're going to do, just like you said around zip code or whatever the variable is, is that when they get donors, very early in the relationship, they're going to have to sort of set these donors on different paths. So donors, the same two donors may both give fifty dollars. One of the things which I have been recommending is that you put some small hurdle in front of those two donors to see which one jumps over the hurdle. So the hurdle might be invite them to come by the nonprofit or you know to attend an event or a lecture or simply even to have lunch or something. They go for the executive One of them may say, no, thank you, it was just a fifty dollar gift. I'm not looking for a meaningful relationship. And the other one is saying, no, I'd love to have a with the executive director. Um, when that person, both of those people, when the person doesn't jump over the hurdle, it's an indication a little bit to you that maybe you can scrimp a little bit on the resources that you were going to spend on that donor and take those resources, those scarce resources, and spend them disproportionately on the other donor. And I'll give you a funny example about that, about the Nature Conservancy. I have a house up in New Hampshire, and the Nature Conservancy bought some land on the other side of the lake that I live on. And, um, and so several hundred acres cost them millions of dollars, and I'm going to get to look at land, not houses. Um, and in appreciation, I gave them a modest gift. Uh, this was the New Hampshire Nature Conservancy. I live in Massachusetts the rest of the year, and um, they called me up after I did that, and they had a month later, and they, asked, they said, um, well, were I going to be up in New Hampshire, um, and could, would I want to go snowshoeing on the land? Or would my children want to go snowshoeing on the land they helped, uh, uh, if I helped them buy? And now, I gave them a modest gift. I ended up going snowshoeing on that land over the Christmas vacation when I was up there. The, the two fundraisers that spent time with me, the executive director and then the major gift officer who went off with my three children in snowshoes, um, the executive director told us about Pine Barrens, how important they were. That act of stewardship probably cost them $2,000. That was in excess of the gift that I gave them. So at this point in the stewardship, that, they were at a loss. They, if they kept doing that with everybody, they would actually be out of business. But they had obviously done their homework that I had resources and there was the potential for a larger gift. That was the entire day. They never asked me for more money. I went back to Boston. Several months later, again, the New Hampshire Nature Conservancy called me up, not fighting with the Massachusetts Nature Conservancy, who at this point probably felt a little envious that New Hampshire was actually stewarding a person in Massachusetts. Um, they were coming back to Boston. Would I have lunch with them? Make a long story short, I had lunch with them, gave them a much larger gift, and they actually made out the deal. Now, I've given to a lot of nonprofits. Nobody does that. That early in the relationship to actually distinguish. Now, if I had said no, I think they just would have moved on to the next person. No problem. You've gone into us. Like they did. Exactly. Exactly. We're going to take a really quick break. And when, when we come back, I, I want to uh, uh, just reflect a little bit on Pink One News today. Uh, we shared the AFP report. Uh, that showed that nonprofits are raising more money but losing donors. And it sounds like you may have the answer for nonprofits that are caught on that side. Yeah. We'll be right back. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. 
Now, back to the nonprofit coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here live at BBCon uh, with Chuck Longfield. And Chuck, your, your information is uh, uh, so valuable, and your insights uh, as uh, Blackbot's chief scientist has just added so much to today's show. Uh, but I did want to ask you about this, uh, this trend, this study, that uh, donations are going up coming out of the Great Recession, uh, but charities are losing buildings. Yeah. How do they turn that around? Um, well, first I was just going to mention that this has been a long-term trend. Um, it, um, it was a trend effectively before the recession for most organizations uh, in the sense of, um, of losing the numbers of donors decreasing file size, um, and they were making up part by increasing average gifts, so that, that even before the recession, most organizations were making their budgets and basically staying even or making a little bit more money from fewer donors giving more money. The recession actually caused kind of a double whammy, fewer donors giving less money, and now they're actually back to the case where they have fewer donors giving more money, but it's, it's nonetheless the long-term trend is fewer donors. And, and does this go back to what you were saying before is there really are no fewer donors? Yeah. That, that there's actually a smaller pot of more nonprofits looking to get good at fundraising and looking to go after those donors? That's right, yeah. So there's, there's a combination of trends here. Uh, one is the number of Profits continues to increase. Even through the recession, the number of profits increase. So greater competition out there. Um, the, um, the the demographics of donors aren't so great because the World War II generation, which is all but gone, was a very generous um, uh, generation and um, supported more nonprofits at the same age than the baby boomers are willing to support. Baby boomers are far more distrustful in every generation after that you know, as well. And those uh, generations also, their loyalty to organizations is less than their parents and grandparents. Much more fickle, they're more likely to switch to another charity. Uh, and so doesn't that, that requires all of my listeners and everyone here at BabyCon to increase their skills, increase their knowledge, understand how data can help them build those relationships. Because as you said, in your own experience with the Nature Conservancy, it's those interactions that are going to spell the difference. It's not just going to be how many emails I send out, how many direct mail. If that ever works, it's certainly not going to work in the future. No, that's right. They, they need to spend, they, so the trend is going to continue, and I think all nonprofits are going to need to get more comfortable with having file sizes that are smaller. This kind of macho thing where I have five million donors and I'm willing to spend ridiculous amounts of money to maintain a five million record database where many of those donors I'm losing my shirt on just to maintain five million for either lobbying purposes or whatever purposes. They need to get comfortable with, well, maybe four million is a more appropriate number at this stage of, of our nonprofit, um, but more net dollars. And so, um, so I think the long-term trend is that they'll have fewer donors. And that was, um, uh, and when I was saying about sort of early in a relationship, try to identify the people that might increase their philanthropy and have a more meaningful relationship and thereby increase the dollars that you're getting from those donors and especially the net dollars. So there will be 
um, a, uh, also, I think, uh, moving forward, more of an effort to actually focus on net dollars. Right now, way too many organizations get their expense budget each year, and they'll spend the expense budget to, in whatever way to sort of maximize revenue, but at no point are they actually making, and again, there's sort of silo issues here, but are they making the best judgment? Many organizations, for example, would be way better having more robust plan-giving department to plan-giving activity and certainly even major gifts, and they spend too much of the money on direct mail, direct marketing in general, membership. And some of that's historical. Yeah. You know, we've always done it this way, or that's how we've reviewed. Yeah. And I think your point is that they really need to start paying more attention to the data and understanding more about their donors. And it's not just about renewing that $50 or $100 donor or renewing those 5 million files. But do you know enough about those people? And is there a subset of a million that really should be the focus of the next year and not the other four million because you're not going to have the money to be able to support five million anymore. So we've just got a few, few minutes left, and I have to tell you, Dr. Ben, a wonderful happiness here on the show. So do me a favor as a chief scientist uh, at, uh, at Black Club, wrap us up here. BBCon 2013, what did this mean to the industry? Why was this important? Um, you know, I, I, um, I was at lunch today and, and we were talking about another field that was finally leveraging technology, the education field, and, you know, there was um, a great book written by Clay Christensen, who's a, a Harvard Business School professor in, in business. It was uh, disruptive uh, innovation, but now he's talking about disruptive education and where technology for the first time is really making a difference. And I, was talking, I have three children that are in middle school and high school, and technology finally finally is being used in really incredible ways in school now. And children, I believe, I'm watching my children firsthand, are learning better because of it. And I think that, that um, the education field is actually somewhat similar to the field of, of philanthropy. And um, in both fields, we have not really, for the most part, leveraged technology to the fullest. And the tools today are finally getting there where we can, we can start using them to do the things that we need to do. So, so I would sum up in a hopeful way for the future. I, I think that there's a lot of potential now that these things are coming together. And, and how, what is, is Blackhawk doing to help nonprofits ride that way? Yeah, well, I think the software is becoming more intelligent. In other words, the practices, the data is becoming more infused you know, um, into the product. And so I think that increasingly you'll see the tools um, just being, in a sense, almost more of a partner to the nonprofit, helping them. I've always joked that could have tapped them on the shoulder and say, have you thought about this? Right, um, right. Because well, I love that idea that data is now becoming a partner to, to fundraising or philanthropy. I, I love that concept. Uh, we have been here live uh, with Chuck Longfield here at BBCon 2013. Uh, that is our last guest for today. We're wrapping up this special edition. So I'm going to just say thank you so much to everybody at Blackbox for inviting us back uh, here live on the Nonprofit Coach here at BBCon 2013. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.